0: Shabbat shalom, everyone. Shabbat Shalom. I'm uh, Monty Judith with Line of Land Ministries, and this is another broadcast of our Arab Shabbat service for B'nai Shalom, Children of Peace, our Internet Messianic congregation. And we I want to welcome you to the broadcast and welcome you to this Sabbath's teaching and kiddish. Um I want to just make a couple of quick comments before we get started this evening. Um, I want to say thank you to all of you who take the time for a few moments and either send us a donation or send us a thank you note of any type. We'd love to maintain contact with you guys. And each one is a great encouragement to us, helps us to pay for the expenses of the broadcast. And so thank you very much for donating to the broadcast for us. I have a kind of a weird idea uh, that i'd like to spring on you and see if you would consider doing a way to also help the broadcast and that is if you're in your home and you have a television and you're bringing the broadcast up um, so that you can view it uh, from your home and it's possible for other people to view it i want to encourage you to do something that we used to do in the early part of the ministry where If you want to share your faith with someone, if you want to reach out to either other family members or friends or neighbors, one of the easiest ways to do it is invite them over to your home for enjoying a Sabbath dinner. And then you can put the broadcast on, and then they can enjoy kiddish with you, and they can enjoy... The broadcasts in the weaklings sabbath teachings we have found this to be a very effective way for messianics to share their faith with others And I want to encourage you with the idea that maybe you could do that uh, With uh, in your home in your area and use the broadcast for that purpose Um, It would be very encouraging to us that we feel like there's another layer of effect that we get by We're trying to do this to edify the brethren, and we would love to encourage even newer brethren to come and be a part of the broadcast. So give that some consideration if that works for you. I encourage you to do that. Uh, We have now only three and a half weeks left to register for the Feast of Tabernacles Sukkot until uh, there's a late fee charge. We're getting down to the point where we've got to make some hard decisions. And so there's we're going to charge a late fee if you cause us to have to go back and rework some of the planning uh, for it. Uh, as you know, Sukkot comes at the end of September this year. And so we got to make some hard decisions in the middle of August uh, to get ready for that uh, time, peri- time period. So I encourage you, don't hesitate anymore. Get your registration in for the Feast of Tabernacles. And we would love to have you uh, join us here in Chandler with brethren from all over the United States and parts of Canada. All right, those are announcements for this Shabbat. And so Shabbat Shalom, and let's go right to Kiddush.
1: Shabbat Shalom. We're the Judah family, and welcome to our home. Please join us as we usher in the Sabbath.
2: our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your commandments, and has commanded us to be a light unto the nations, and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen.
1: Amen. Now the Kiddush,
3: the blessing over the cup. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech Haolam borei priha Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the
1: fruit of the vine. Amen. Now the Hamotzi, the blessing over the bread.
3: Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu <speaking> melech haolam, hamotzi lechem min haaretz, <Hebrew> amen.
1: Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Husbands, let's bless our wives. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you and bless you and thank you for the wonderful wives that you've given to us in our homes. Father, I thank you for the wonderful wife that you've given me. I pray that you would bless her, strengthen her, and encourage her as she takes care of our children, as she teaches and educates them, and as she takes care of the home and me. Father, I confess that I love her with all of my heart, and I pray that you would pour out your very best blessing upon her on this Sabbath day. I love her and thank you for the unmerited favor and grace that you have given me, Lord, through her. So I thank you, Lord, on this Shabbat, and thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. And now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen.
2: Amen.
1: Now let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Amen.
2: Shabbat
3: shalom. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat
1: shalom. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Micha Mocha. Micha Mocha
3: Ba'elimadohonai. Micha Mocha Nedahar Bachohodeh Nohoratechilot There is none else. You are awesome in praise. Do in wonders, oh Lord. Who is like you, oh Lord. Amen. And now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch HaTarunai, El-Hainu Melech HaOlam, Asher Natan Lanu et Derech HaYeshua
1: ba Mashiach Yeshua. Altogether, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru.
3: All
1: together, The children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, And on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema, if you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem, for the watchword of our faith, the Shema.
3: Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is
1: our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be his name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, he is Lord. Amen. And now the
3: Via Hafta. et Adonai al Checha, Bekolevavka uvconashiha, Uvako meodecha, Veheu had everim ha'ale asher nehime zavka, Hayom alevavacha, Vashinantam la
1: Altogether. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall speak of them when you sit in your house when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen.
4: and daughters will prophesy. Young men will see visions. Your old men dream dreams. I'll pour out my spirit. My servants will prophesy. I'll show wonders in the heavens and signs in heaven. The earth below, yesterday yesterday day,
2: yes, in day,
4: yes, that day. My Savior's walking by. Lord will reign Come and fill this place. You are our
2: sound Kingdom the set to Muvar Torah Torah. Baruch Le'amo
1: Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. If you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy to chapter 1 where our Torah portion will begin for this week. And as you open the scripture, as always, let me do the blessing before the
3: Torah. Blessed
1: are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Our Torah portion for this week is entitled Devarim, which is the first portion in the book of Deuteronomy. Even In the Hebrew, the book is entitled Devarim, which means words, it comes from the first verse of chapter 1 where it says, These are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel on this side of the Jordan. This is the start of the last book, the fifth book of Moses in our Torah cycle. Um, What this book contains is a repetition of the law and all the commandments that have been given to Moses that Moses wrote down in a single book, in a single volume. And then he is reading these words to the children of Israel before they cross over the Jordan into the promised land. This is the second generation. The first generation that left Egypt has died off. And this is the next generation of Israelites that are allowed to now get ready to go into the promised land. This, like I said, this uh, book is a repetition of the law. In fact, the the name, the English uh, Greek name for the book Deuteronomy literally means second law, which. Basically, the, the law has been repeated and written again. It specifically that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 18, where it talks about the command to a king. When a new king rises up, the king is commanded to write down a copy of the law so that whoever becomes the ruler of the land, that he knows the ins and outs of the law, the law of Moses, the Torah, the commandments, so that he can be a righteous ruler of his people. And that's where we get this idea that this is a second law. This book is very interesting because it will repeat for us some of the stories that we have heard in our, throughout our Torah cycle already. It will recount the stories of when they left Egypt and when they came to Mount Sinai and the things that they heard and the commandments that they heard and all of those things. In some cases in the book of Deuteronomy, we have additional details to those events. We have additional things that maybe we didn't read that were going on that were not detailed in the previous passages, but here, we get another layer to the story, sometimes a little bit more details. One of the, the first uh, best examples of that is the idea that when the children of Israel wanted to send spies into the land to spy out the land before going into the promised land. Of course, we know the story. The spies came back with a bad report. Children of Israel rejected the land. If you read that passage back in Numbers, as it reads, it says that the Lord commanded Moses, send for yourself men, spies. It looks like the Lord commanded it, but we have the details. here. Here in Deuteronomy chapter 1 starting at verse uh, 19 where it says that they came to uh, they came to Moses the people came to Moses and says, we should send out the spies and it sounded like a good idea at the time and then Moses went to the Lord and the Lord then said send for yourself so if you read numbers it might look like it's the Lord's idea if you read Deuteronomy you have the additional detail the additional conversations that says no that idea actually was the children of Israel's idea to send that recon unit to send those spies, and obviously that was maybe a bad idea. We have those details there, and there are some details like that in the book of Deuteronomy that don't appear in the other passages that then we can learn and glean more out of those stories. So we might repeat stories and ideas that we've already covered, but then this repetition of it will actually kind of sear it into our memory more so that we might learn those principles better maybe if we hear it in a different way. This is a common teaching t- tactic that teachers use when it comes to repetition and cementing an idea into one, to, into a student. Um, and we have that same example here by sometimes covering material we've already covered before. Let me start by just giving a brief outline of what is in this Torah portion, the passages that we will read. And then what I want to do is I want, do want to talk about just the overall um, overview of the book of Deuteronomy, what these words should mean to us when we study this book. As I said, Moses is speaking to the children of Israel and he begins recounting history. Things that have already taken place. He talks about this in verse 9. He talks about how he appointed leaders among them. And and the passage that continues on, how we chose leaders from among the people so that when I communicated words to you, that you could hear those words. I would tell the leaders, the captains of tens, hundreds, thousands. Then they would go and tell those that are under them so that this is how communication worked in the camp. you got to remember who he's speaking to. This generation that he's speaking to on the opposite side of the Jordan, some of these people did not leave Egypt. They were born in the in the wilderness. It was only the ones who were under the age of 20 that were to see the promised land that were still alive in this generation. Then those were the ones anyone under the age of 20 at that time, 38 years ago or so. Those were the ones that left Egypt, but also got to go into the promised land. Everybody younger than that, everybody younger than the age of about 40 was born in the wilderness that was hearing these words. So sometimes we have to recount, we have to teach that next generation what the previous generation experienced. We have to give them a history lesson because they didn't experience it. They didn't see it. There were people that were hearing these words that did not hear the voice of God from Mount Sinai, did not hear the 10 commandments booming from the mountain. And so obviously what an amazing blessing it was for those that were there to hear it. And they could be the ones that would teach the youngers and say, <laughs> had you been there that, booming voice and they just, they would have to imagine it. The older would have to teach the younger in this process. And that's one of the other reasons why we have this repetition and this history lesson here that Moses is giving to the children of Israel. Also interesting when he's talking, it says in this passage, he's talking to all Israel, not just the sons of Israel, but all Israel. I love that phrase here, just here in verse one, that where it talks about almost like that phrase, and that description of Israel exists outside of time. It's just the sons of Israel, okay, those were the ones who were born, and those were the ones that left Egypt. But when you're saying he's talking to all Israel, well, if I say today I'm talking to all Israel, there's all the generations and everyone, past, present, future, that this covenant that is being confirmed here in these words by Moses is to all Israel and even exists outside of time. The history lesson continues on how Israel refused to enter into the land. The bad report came and they did not believe God. They did not follow these things. And and what reads for the first couple of chapters of this book is a little bit of a rebuke by Moses and says, your fathers did this, this generation, you did this, you rejected the land and you did this, you know, God told you to do this and you did this instead. And so this whole thing starts with almost like, like a warning because this history lesson isn't necessarily the most positive one for the sons of israel these are all the mistakes that they made when they rejected the promised land and the penalties and the and the punishment that came and then you spent all these years in the wilderness and the reason why you spent the years in the wilderness was because your fathers rejected the promised land all of these things it's it is timely that every time that this uh uh Torah portion comes up that it is as we approach the ninth of Av, which is one of the, the days of fasting, one of the things where you go and, and you fast before the Lord, where the punishments of God came upon the sons of Israel. It's believed on that date that that was when the spies came back with the bad report. It's believed on that date that both temples were destroyed on that date. And so this whole time, as we approach the ninth of Av, and as we approach also Yom Kippur day of atonement, sometimes we are, it's right at the right time of the year for us to be reminded of. you know what, we make mistakes sometimes. We've made mistakes, punishments have come, and, some, and, and we need to make sure that at least at some point in the year we're having a refresh on the mistakes that we've made so that we know what we're doing when we go into a time of repentance. When we go into the month of Alul, when we are to reflect upon ourselves and the mistakes that we've made and to humble ourselves before the Lord, it's a great time and it's very timely to hear these lessons of rebuke and the mistakes that we've made as we approach that season. Like I said, the story continues on giving just detailed history of what happened uh, all the way going through the latter years of going through the wilderness. We have additional details on when the king of Sihon was defeated and the king of Og and these were these other kingdoms that the children of Israel um, conquered and destroyed as they came to approach the land where they're standing today. And we get some additional detail that's that's fascinating when you actually go in and read it. When it says that we defeated these kingdoms, okay, the, the uh, kingdom of Og, um, the um, the king of there. When you get the description here, it talks about that kingdom as being giants. That this was a kingdom of giants, and then even when it describes um, Og, the king of Bashan. Who they conquered, who they defeated. You have this interesting detail here. If you go all the way to Deuteronomy 3 at verse 11, it describes his bed that this king slept in and it was an iron bed made of iron made of strength and its length and its size was nine cubits in length and four cubits wide which which converted would be thirteen and a half feet long and six feet wide it's like two king-sized beds stacked you know top to bottom was the size of this guy's bed and this guy was a giant now as we read before in the passage hey we took down some kingdoms here they were in our way god blessed us we went and conquered them When it's all said and done and you look at some of the additional detail, this was a miracle that the children of Israel conquered and defeated these guys. They were giants in the land. They were huge. They were strong. They were powerful. This whole idea of David versus Goliath, that didn't start with the Philistines and a little shepherd boy throwing some rocks. It started back here at the children of Israel when they were told by God to move through the wilderness, to go to this place, to defeat this kingdom because they came against them. The children of Israel have a history of defeating giants. This is an encouragement to us that it's like that, that that when God has commanded us to do something and to go and to travel, even if something seems insurmountable, God gives us the ability and creates a miracle so that we can defeat giants that might be standing in our way. If you remember the complaint of the children of Israel after they sent in the spies and what their, what was their fear with the bad report when it came back, it says, "Oh, there's giants in the land and they will swallow us whole and they will and our children will be killed. You know, if we were to." go and try to enter into the land that we'd be defeated and our children would die. Well, after the punishment came, the older generation, they died off, and now their children are the ones who are going to get to go to the promised land. Lord will protect protect them, so much so even that those children in that second generation has a history of defeating giants even in the wilderness before going into the promised land. So this fear that the older generation had has already been alleviated. If anybody had been there already in the wilderness, this is, uh, this is the story as it continues. And it continues to show that if you just trust in God, the words that he says and what he has told you to do, he will guide you. He will protect you. Even if you use your own eyes and you fear what's around you, if God has given you a promise, he will fulfill that promise. That's something we can always be encouraged by. The last uh, verse of our Torah portion is Deuteronomy 3, um, verse 21 and 22. It says this, speaking to Joshua. I commanded Joshua at this time, saying, Your eyes have seen all the Lord th- your God has done to these two kings. So I, the Lord, will do, all the ki- do to all the kingdoms through which you pass. You must not fear them, for the Lord your God himself... Fights for you. That's the encouragement that even though a, with this history lesson of knowing, hey, we defeated these guys, we defeated these guys, and just like I defeated them, the Lord says, I will defeat anybody who stands in your way when you enter the promised land. This is the encouragement to the children of Israel that Moses is giving here on the, uh, the uh, east side of the Jordan before the children of Israel go in. No fear. We shouldn't have the fear that we had when we sent in the spies. We shouldn't have the fears we wandered in the wilderness. Have no fear when you enter into the land. And so this is the last bit of encouragement as he continues to give this language. Now, what I do want to do is I do want to talk about the overall uh, structure of the book of Deuteronomy because the book of Deuteronomy reads as a confirming covenant with these people you got to remember, God made covenant with the children of Israel at Mount Sinai. And some of these children of Israel were not at Mount Sinai, but they're hearing these words. But what you do when you have a covenant is you reread the words of the covenant, the stipulations of the covenant. You keep that in mind, and when you go to confirm it, you have anniversaries that you confirm covenants with. You reread the contract of certain things. If you, you make a business contract with somebody, you don't ever just sign that business contract and that gets filed away and you never look at that contract again. Absolutely not. If you go and you continue to have a good working relationship, you should know every word that's in that contract. Sometimes you got to pull it back out and double check something. And that is to confirm the covenant and the agreement that has been made. That is also what the book structure of the book of Deuteronomy is. <clears throat> In ancient times, when a covenant was made, there was multiple parts that, it, that made up what a covenant was. And when you read a covenant contract, there'd be a couple of uh, items and structures of that contract. You would have a preamble. You would have a thing where, where you initially would start and say, who is this contract between you would do that in every covenant, and every uh, marriage covenant. That's exactly what it says. This is a marriage covenant between this person and this person. This is the covenant. So obviously, that's what you do with uh, in the preamble. And that's exactly what's here in the first five verses of the book of Deuteronomy. It says, these are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel. And here we are. And this is the command and the covenant made between God and them and the children of Israel. It's the preamble of this covenant. Uh, instruction sometimes also, in a covenant or a contract, you would give a historical prologue to the covenant. Why are we here? What is the How did we get to this point to then make this covenant and that 's what we have through the first uh, four chapters of the book of Deuteronomy is this historical prologue that instructs like, hey, wh- why are we even here? Why do we have a covenant? Why do we- what's a contract? What's the history of this person? What's the history of this person? And we're now making a covenant. Then every contract has stipulations. It has general stipulations. It has specific stipulations. And as we go through the whole rest of the book of Deuteronomy, starting in chapter five, continuing all the way through chapter 26, we have the stipulations of the covenant. Repeating of the law, repeating of the commandments. We'll have a repeat of the Ten Commandments that they heard from Mount Sinai. We'll have a repeat of many other commandments and covenants and stipulations of the covenant God made with the children of Israel. That is what the book of Deuteronomy is all about. Other aspects of making a covenant is that you put the the covenant and the words of the covenant in a place where it is then read and observed many times over. And we have a commandment later on in the book where it's to be written on stones on a mountain when they enter into the promised land. And all the words of the covenant are there to be read. Also, the king is to repeat those words, repeat those covenant, read them to the people every seven years. This is how we maintain the covenant to have these things continue to be read. All of these things all uh, make up this covenant of, of, of what it is. It also has blessings and curses. If you break the covenant, this will happen. Every single contract, well-written contract, has these sort of structures in it. And in the same way, that is what the book of Deuteronomy is. God who spoke through Moses? Moses writing down all of these words, and it is a confirmation of the covenant, and it's written in the language of a contract of repeating the covenant that God has made with him, with the children of Israel. It's also fascinating here, right here at the very beginning, the book of our, the name of our book, the name of our Torah portion, Devarim, words. When you sit here and you talk about this, it's interesting that Moses is the man that's the one who's giving these words. Because if you you remember, when we were first introduced to Moses back in Exodus, early chapters of Exodus, and he was then given the covenant with God, he he sees the burning bush and God speaks to him. What was one of the first things that Moses ever said to God? He said, I am not a man of eloquent speech. I am no slow of tongue or whatever the translation is. What it basically is in the translation, if you go into the Hebrew, what he literally said is this. I am not a man of words. Literally, that's what he said in the Hebrew. I am not a man of words. Okay. This was the man that God called to lead the children of Israel. He went before Moses. Now, at times he had Aaron speak for him, but at other times he was truly the he he was the judge over Israel. He heard all of the the um, uh, issues that were among the children of Israel, and he spoke to them and gave ruling and gave judgment. And he's been speaking to God a lot of times, and he's been telling his brother a lot of commandments, and he's been telling the children of Israel a lot of commandments. So as time goes on, and as these forty or so years um, have passed with Moses. God has transformed Moses into a man who is not a man of words to a man who's probably said some of the most profound words in the history of time. We have here when it says, these are the words which Moses spoke to all of Israel. God has used Moses who might have started out as a man not of words and has become a man who speaks and is a prophet of God who speaks the word of God. Wherever you picture that you start in your personal walk with God, you might, say, you might say you do some self-examination and say, you know what? I don't know if I'm capable of doing that or that or that. You know, God has called me to do this, but man, I'm not ready to do this. God's called you to lead worship, but you don't think you can sing. God has called you to lead people, but it's like you, you can't even say hi without getting nervous to another person, much less that you're going to be a person who leads others. That's a spiritual principle here and with Moses as an example, as that you might, God will transform you through the process of your walk. If you do as he commands you to do that, where you end up is not where you started. That you might have started as somebody who thought, man, I'm not capable of doing this. I'm not capable of leading people or walking out this calling that I feel like God has told me. But when it's all said and done in the Lord's timing, through experience, through trial, through tribulation, through everything that has happened, God will transform you into that person. Spiritual principle that I've heard, always been encouraged by is this, is that God does not call the most qualified person. He doesn't. He sometimes will call somebody who maybe isn't the most qualified to be a leader or something like that. What he does though is he qualifies the chosen. That sometimes he doesn't choose he chooses he doesn't choose the most qualified, but he does qualify those who he has chosen. And that's what he's done with Moses for 38 years in the wilderness. And that's what he can do with you in your walk. Every time that you feel like maybe that God, it's like, God, why'd you call me? Surely should have called another because somebody can do the job better than me. No, if you're anointed and you're called, God will qualify you. God will give you the needed resources, the skills, the spiritual gifts to walk out what he has called you to do. Sometimes you just have to be humble enough and let the Lord reveal those things to you. That's what Moses had to do. It was probably pretty hard for him for those 38 years. But when it's all said and done, with standing on this mountain before he's about to die. He doesn't get to enter the promised land. But all he is is a man of words at this point in time when he didn't start that way. So we're, we have these, this title, Devarim, words. We can talk about what is the power of words? What do, what do words really mean? I always find it interesting that we have books in the Torah. We have Exodus, which is Shemot. We have the book of names. We have the book of Numbers. Technically, it's the book of B'mibar in the wilderness, but we call it Numbers. So we have a book about names. We have a book about numbers. We also have a book about words. And words also in the Hebrew means things. And so we kind of are covering the whole gamut of, of various ideas and concepts with the instruction of Torah. Names, numbers, words, all of these things. We pretty much got the, got the whole gamut of ideas covered here. Devarim is the plural of the Hebrew word Devar, or Debar, because it has the bet in it. I always look, love looking at the Hebrew letter and the meanings of that. It comes, It's made up of a dalet, a bet, and a resh. And what that can be considered as is the resh is one's head. For the head of person, and so the door is a the dalit is a door. Something is opened up and revealed, and the bet is a house or an encasement. And so it's like when you hear words, it's almost like somebody's brain, their mind in their head that is encased. It's like a door is opened and somebody gets to reveal their mind to you. That's the perfect example of what words are when somebody speaks from their mind, speaks from their heart. They're revealing something to you, something that they have inside their head. Suddenly it becomes something, becomes a Substance that you can you can learn from, you can hear, and then you can obtain, and then that can mean something to you. Very powerful thing that words are to us. Other scriptures talk about great things when it comes to these words. Um, if you go to uh, Proverbs chapter 18, it talks many times about the power of the, the power of the tongue and all the things that we speak. Um, if you go to Proverbs 18, uh, verse 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. It's amazing the words that we speak and things that we say, the impact that those words can have on others. Both death and life are in the power of the tongue. We can speak good, we can speak evil. And so with the words that we say, whatever we open up from our minds that God has given to us, we should always keep that in mind. <clears throat> it's also in James chapter 3 that talks about how the, the the tongue of man is like a fire that can't be tamed and, and all these things, and there's a great deal of warning there um, in, in James chapter 3 that talks about the 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 power of the tongue and that we, surely that we should not use the same tongue that curses uh, our brethren to also bless the Lord for in the same way that salt water doesn't come from a freshwater spring, that we should always be mindful of the words that we say, making sure that they are to, that our words should be sweet. Our words should be pleasant. Our words should encourage one another. If you go to Psalms chapter 19 and at verse 10, it says this, Actually, let's start in verse nine. The fear of the Lord is clean and enduring forever. The judgments of God are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than they are gold. Yes, much more than fine gold. Sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb. The words of God, the commands of God, the judgments of God, the words that he has said if we receive them in the right way, they are, they are sweeter than the honeycomb. They're pleasant. They're, they're as valuable as fine gold. The words that we say can also have the same impact upon others around us. There's another Hebrew word that the root word of it is Debar, and that is the word Devorah. And one very interesting thing of what that is, that is a bee, not the letter B, a bumblebee. A honeybee. A bee that buzzes around and makes honey. Now, you might say initially, like, what in the world does that have to do with, with words? That, 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 that a, a bee, why is the root word of the Hebrew word for bee, devar, words, things like that. Well, if you look at what a bee is, what a bee does, it's fascinating how the parallel actually continues. Now, um, first of all, bees, uh, they can sting you. That's one thing that we, when you see a bee, you kind of run from a bee. When you see a bee buzzing around you, because it can harm you, it can sting you, in the same way that any words that we speak can sting someone else. We can harm somebody else with the words that we say. Even the smallest, simplest word, insult, name that we call, we can can seriously harm our fellow brethren with even a single word. In the same way that a bee, that sometimes, and that, that hurts, you want to avoid that at the same time. Bees also, they produce honey. They produce one of the sweet natu- sweetest natural substances that we can obtain, that we can eat, that we can consume. In the same way that the words that we say can be so sweet, so pleasant, can nourish somebody and put a smile on somebody's face. Just like a big piece of bread with some honey slapped on it. Honey and peanut butter is kind of one of my go-tos. Honey is one of those things that put a smile on somebody's face and it's so sweet, so pleasant. The words that you say to somebody else can be the exact same thing. That you give a blessing, or words of encouragement, words of, of, of a compliment, or a blessing upon them, or to pray for somebody. It's amazing that that's what it can do. A bee also, very interesting, is also the most common insect that is one of the pollinating insects of the animal kingdom. They go from flower to flower and they go and they pick up uh, pollen from one flower to another and then they go to another one and then carrying that pollen, it then allows for another flower to be pollinated. And what that truly does and the main aspect of where that works is in the growing of fruit. The fruit often comes and grows off of a tree or a plant and it comes and grows out of a bloom or a flower. And then a fruit in certain species will not produce fruit unless somebody has... Pollinated, unless a creature has come, a butterfly or a bee has come along, gone into that flower and pollinated it, and been the one that carried the needed resource for fruit to be produced. We can start to make the spiritual parallel with this that when we speak and we say our words often what we do is we're carrying the words of somebody else something else that we've heard something else that we've been taught or educated and has put up in, been put upon our heart and we go and we carry that to somebody else now if it's a good fruit if it's a good word then when we carry that and those words carry on to somebody else fruit is produced good fruit sweet fruit fruit that that nourishes somebody else that's what fruit does when it says that we're, we are to produce good fruit, spiritual fruit, fruits of the spirit, all of those things. It's to be a benefit to others, to be a blessing, to, to actually spiritually nourish somebody. And so if that's what we do with our words, then we are just like a wonderful honeybee that goes around and continues to pollinate and to, and to, to spread the word, the good news to one another so that good fruit can be produced. That is what we should do with our words. That is exactly what we should do. In fact, if we are not sharing the words and the, and the concepts and the teachings that we have learned over time, even from the simplest education of arithmetic all the way up through spiritual principles that we learn through the Bible, if we are not passing that along to another, then it's as if, it's as if a bee was there ready to pollinate another plant, but he never did, and so we didn't get any fruit. Would nothing happen? And one of the things is you look at it. Also, bees are dying off. They're starting to become an endangered species even in our modern day. And if we're starting to remove that, that is a work of the enemy. Whatever it is and whatever is causing that, that they would remove that ability to produce more fruit. It's the same thing we have going on in our modern day and any sort of instance or any sort of thing that would get in our way in our day to day lives for us to share the words and the concepts and to teach a younger generation, the same words and teachings that we learned ourselves. If we can, if I were the enemy, I would try to cut off the lines of communication. I would make it to so that words aren't even heard. That maybe only words that ever are, are communicated, sometimes maybe they're only read. That they're only the, what you read in a book or read on a computer screen. And you never actually hear the words. They never actually penetrate your heart and soul. You have to read them with your own eyes. you got to remember, our eyes can be deceiving. When you're talking about nonverbal communication, you look at something and we misinterpret everything. You can read and you can't read into the tone of somebody on a text message. You can say, why are you so mad? It's like, I'm not mad. I was just texting. And it's like, you can't read into that. What you have to do is you have to have true, real communication with somebody, hearing the words. If I was the enemy and I wanted to stop God's plan of, of communicating his covenant, his words, the gospel, the good news, then I would remove the communication. I would remove the lines of communication where nobody ever hears anything. People don't go to church anymore. Don't go to their congregations. Don't ever hear audibly out of the voice of a pastor or a friend or a loved one or anybody would have their best interest in mind. And let's remove that communication. Let's do everything via text, email. It starts and it, it continues that way. This is the work of the enemy in the same way that bees are dying off is in the same way that words are coming off of, are, are not reaching the people that they need to hear. Our book here, like I said, is all about this older generation teaching the younger generation the promise of God's promises. God's promises of His covenant that He made with their forefathers, and that covenant is for you as well. And I'm going to confirm that covenant. I'm giving to give you anniversaries and memorials and seasons to celebrate the covenant and the good news and the blessing and the message of hope and all of those things. If that is not read, if these things are not communicated, then it's as if every pop, the entire bee population dies off and let's see if anybody can get any good fruit then. That's what we're dealing with here in the modern day. That's what we need to be encouraged. That's why when we get here to these Torah portions and we get to these words, we have to read these words. We have to speak these words. We have to speak them to our neighbor, to our brother, to our children, teaching them those things. And we can't just hand them a book and say, here, read this. You can't just hand them a a, a tablet with an educational game and hope that they learn everything they're supposed to learn. We have to go in and we've got to get back to maybe back to a fundamental conservative ideal mindset where we go and we speak life into people and not just let everything else in the world around us communicate all of those things to us. We must speak life. It must come off of our lips and it must audibly go into the ears of another person. That is how fruit is produced. It's good spiritual fruit that encourages us, uplifts us in all of those things. Let us keep that in mind as we go through these words and as we reconfirm this covenant that God made with the children of Israel. As we go through the next several weeks of Torah portions going through, we'll be repeating some of these commandments. And may these words penetrate us to know The promises that God has given to us and all the commandments that he gave through Moses, who through a humble man who then taught through the children of Israel and that through the testimony of Israel and through our father Abraham, all the families of the earth may be blessed and may Israel be a light to the nations and the example for all of us to follow as we go. And may we always remember to share the words that we have heard before the word of God. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day. We thank you, Lord, for your teaching, for your instruction, Lord. We thank you, Lord, as we start the book of Deuteronomy, Lord, and as we reconfirm this covenant. Father, I pray for every person who might be studying the Torah at this time, who might be hearing this teaching or others, Lord, that they would read and look at these words and remember the covenant. May we reconfirm the covenant that we that you have made with us and with our forefathers. Many of us, Lord, who are not standing on Mount Sinai, we did not hear the voice of God. But this book that we read here today of Moses giving his final uh, declaration, his the final testament to renew this covenant, Lord, the people who he wrote this book for, Lord, also didn't hear the voice at the mountain. So let these words penetrate us, Lord. Let these words in this book exist outside of time and minister uh, Minister to us in our modern day, in our day-to-day lives, encouraging us, strengthening us, Lord. And may we always walk uprightly before you, knowing the good news, the good word. And may we always share that good news and that good word with those that need it, making disciples of the nations. So, Father, we love you, bless you, and thank you on the Sabbath day. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. The blessing after
3: the Torah.
1: Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen.
0: Shabbat shalom. If you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 9. And also, if you want to put your finger there in preparation, we're also going to go to First Timothy, chapter 3, uh, this Sabbath. This is the Sabbath of Devarim, of words, the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy, as we call it. And on a personal note, I just want to share this particular Sabbath is now complete for me personally 33 years of teaching the torah the very first portion i ever taught publicly 33 years ago was devarim and so it's always been a very special portion to me uh, in terms of my own personal walk before the lord in keeping the torah uh Devarim has several parts to it. One of the parts, and that's the reason why we're going to select these passages in the New Testament, has to do with the choosing of um, wise men that would be the heads of tribes and the leaders of the community. The heads of tribes, uh, leaders of thousands, leaders of hundreds, leaders of 50, uh, and they would set up a, a delegated structure of leadership, so that the people could respond to the leadership and work its way back toward Moses. Moses, as one single man, can't possibly address all of the issues. There's also a secondary thing is the whole implication of this setting up of structure and wise men comes from the council of Jethro as well as Moses. And so there's a reminder of how God specifically called Moses. And if you remember, God specifically called Moses at the burning bush experience while he was in the employ of Jethro, his father-in-law. And so we have two passages here, one that's going to talk about a personal call, in this case Acts chapter 9 about the Apostle Paul. And then we're going to talk about another passage where Apostle Paul is giving instruction on how to set up eldership, deacons, leaders within the communities, how to choose them So for that. So it has to do with the call and the designation of authority and responsibility for leaders. Take, go with me now to Acts chapter 9. I'm certain that you're familiar with the story, but let's review it again uh, quickly. Beginning at verse 1, it says, Now Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And it came about that he journeyed. He was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground, heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Yeshua, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and it shall be told to you what you must do. And the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were opened, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Behold, uh, here I am, Lord. And he said, The Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying." And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come to him and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to thy servants at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go, for he has chosen instrument of mine, and to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Ananias departed, entered the house, and and after laying hands on him, brother Saul, the Lord Yeshua, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, he has sent me so that you may regain sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell upon his eyes something like scales, And he regained his sight, and he arose and was baptized. And he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Yeshua in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed uh, those who called on his this name and who had come here for Purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests. But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Yeshua is the Messiah. Now, again, we're reading the personal call of Saul of Tarsus who's going to become Paul, the apostle Paul. Uh, Paul is his Gentile name. That he used Saul, actually the Hebrew is Sha'ul, Saul is Sha'ul, and his Hebrew name was Sha'ul, but that name was then uh, transliterated over a Gentile name, which we call Paul. And it gives us the testimony of how Sha'ul, Saul, was before he was confronted by the Lord. And then we have this moment where there's light, and and suddenly he's having a conversation uh, with God and God is telling him what's going to happen to him and how he's it's going to work out and it is and another man Ananias the servant uh, even though he has concerns about Paul um, is told by the Lord certain things are going to be happening with him and sure enough uh when he receives his sight back and he receives the Lord he now honors uh Yeshua of Nazareth as being the Son of God, he then boldly goes in and starts proclaiming that he's the Son of God. And of course, others are wondering what in the world's going on. We always heard this other thing about this man. And it says, and I love this verse here it says, verse 22, but Shaul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at, at Damascus by proving that this Yeshua is the Messiah. Um. The parallels in the, in the ancient stories, of course, Moses' own experience of going to the burning bush, God actually physically talks to him, calls him to a particular task to go back to Egypt and to go to deliver his brethren. In the same way, Paul is going to be asked to go into the communities and share the faith, not only with his own brethren, but also with the Gentiles wherever he will be sent, that all men will be called now to the Messiah uh, through, through his ministry and through his effort. Paul was a very scholarly man. In fact, part of his testimony is he was a Pharisee, that he was a disciple of Gamaliel, and by the way, to be a disciple of Gamaliel was like the pinnacle of training for the Pharisees. And just just to get trained by Gamaliel, just to get him to take you under his wing in teaching, you had to have committed um, the the Torah, memorization-wise, to your heart before the age of 13. I mean, you had to know what the Torah said. So you didn't have to go to a scroll and look what the Torah says. You knew what the Torah said and you would carry on with your instruction and so forth on the basis of that. Paul was extremely well versed in the law and extremely well versed in what God had already manifest and said. And all of a sudden Paul's having his own, you know, burning bush experience, if you'll allow me to use that. Uh, here on the road to Damascus. It dramatically turns him around. Um, but I like this part here where it explains why did the Lord choose Paul in particular? Why did he say he is going to be an instrument for my name's sake? Uh, this is the one of the few places where we see where the Lord actually goes out and selects a particular expertise, a particular man because of his expertise to do the work of the ministry. In almost all other cases, God selects, if you will, the the humblest, the, the lowest, the base uh, of the brethren. Uh, Moses had a speech impediment, and he you know, couldn't really speak very well. He had to use his brother Aaron to be able to speak for him. Um, and things like that. Uh, David was the youngest of the brothers. Um, he was the one who took care of the sheep for his father's house. Everybody else went, was capable and went to war uh, in that instance. But God chose the humble, chose the ones that nobody thought uh, would be um, an, a natural leader, the one that would be. But in this case, the Lord chooses a very, very capable man. And he's going to become a very, very powerful figure uh, within the faith for all of us. In fact, most of the Christian church today is holding on to the letters of Paul and the story of Paul. And it is almost, let me just say the almost, in some cases even more so, almost the dominant teaching in Christian churches today, even over Yeshua. That's how powerful Paul's testimony is and how powerfully he went out and he changed the world. In fact, Judaism goes around saying that Yeshua of Nazareth did not start Christianity. The Apostle Paul is the guy who started Christianity. He was the one that went out into the Gentile world and had a great impact on all of the people. When we go back and we look at Judaism, when we go back and look at, at, at the Hebrew people, Moses clearly stands out as a dominant man in terms of even more so than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because Moses wrote the Torah, and he gave us the written instruction that goes from generation to generation. Whereas Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob got promises of descendants, it is Moses who actually ministered to the descendants to bring them to the testimony of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that's part of the parallel here is how that God has chosen specific leaders uh, for doing the work of the ministry. Um, I always tell this one joke um, a little bit that talks about the call of men. And I've told the joke before, so forgive me if you've heard it before. Um, So there's this very devout man, and he's praying. And he's asking God, he said, God, I really want you to use my life for your kingdom. I I want to help increase uh, the kingdom. Would you please call me? Would you please use me? Um, In your kingdom. And all of a sudden, the angel Gabriel shows up. And he looks at the man and he says, Brother, I want you to know God has heard your prayer, and God has chosen you, and He is going to use you very powerfully in the kingdom and the man says oh wonderful what what does god want me to do where where do i go what do i do and he says well god actually wants you to live a mediocre life make a series of poor decisions but other people will observe that and learn about important things in the kingdom and the guy goes that's it i i thought i we could be like a moses or a paul and Gabriel says, well, God's already got a Moses to Paul, but we need a guy just like you right now. And part of the call uh, that God puts on is you don't get to really choose it. Um, in fact, let me emphatically state that again. Let's say that you want to minister and you want to share with the Lord and you want to be part of the kingdom. It's not your call. The Lord has to call you. This is true in the case of Moses. This is true in the case of Paul. Uh, and Moses had this training with Egypt. He had certain skills. Paul was a Pharisee. He had tremendous training and so forth. But it wasn't because of their qualifications that they decided to, to uh, go into the leadership. It was because God called them to go into that leadership for it. So with that said, let me take you to the second passage that we have here, which is in 1 Timothy 3. And part of our portion in Devarim is where Moses was instructed to choose wise and discerning men. To help in the leadership because Moses was confessing that he can't bear the whole burden of leading the whole nation. So, uh, Moses was instructed to choose wise and discerning men who could be the heads of tribes, who could be the, you know, the head of thousands of, of hundreds and fifties and, and so forth. And what we have here is Paul giving the instruction to in the various communities where he's gone and ministered in different collections of brethren have emerged now as followers of Yeshua. And so what he's going to do is give some instruction to Timothy as he goes around. This is how you set up the leadership in various communities so that the brethren are ministered to and led properly. First Timothy 3. Beginning of verse 1, it says, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, uncontentious, and free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not uh, know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new comfort, lest he become conceited, fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must be of good, have a good reputation with those outside of the church so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And it continues on with some further instructions for other leadership positions. Now, here's the interesting thing that is we have to draw a comparison on leadership. Shof team judges Of Israel um, that render judgments and decisions for the brethren that's down at the local level and so forth they're not called by the Lord they are chosen by the people the people are to select someone amongst them they believe is wise discerning and is able to render an impartial judgment according to the standards that the Torah gives Justice, justice, you shall pursue. In other words, as you're pursuing justice, you must do it in a just way. So we're needing people who will render judge, just decisions, and go about making those decisions in a just way. And in leaders down in the community, it's chosen by the people. It's not a position of being called. Um, and that's what Paul is differentiating about the leadership that's done at the local level. A person who is in full-time ministry has to have a call from God. If he's a pastor, if he's a particular teacher, if he's an evangelist, if he's a minister, of a, he needs to have the testimony of a call. God called me and chose me to do this. He doesn't do that on his own. But down at the local congregational level, the requirement is not for a leader to, oh, I have a call from God. Rather, the call down there is that the people trust his judgment and have appointed him and put him in the position of doing so. Now, here's where the conflict comes in. If you have a guy who has a public ministry going on, and he's offering himself as a teacher, as a prophet, and he doesn't have a call from God, and he's running on his own steam because of his own ideas, I can assure you that ministry is not going to work out very well. And by the way, probably great harm will be coming to the people. Because you have to have that call from God. You have to have that inspiration from God. You have to have the strength from God to be able to do that work. And if you're doing it in your own strength, and you're doing it because, oh, I thought it was a good idea that I should do this, or I have some knowledge here and I'm all puffed up about it and I'm going to go tell everybody about my knowledge I have, it's not going to work out for you. And it's not going to work out well for the kingdom. However, down at the local level, you need to have people who have already demonstrated leadership skills so that just like uh, his own house has been led well, that that the congregational family, it too can be led well. If you have a man who is abusive and unfaithful to his wife, that's not the guy you want being in charge of the congregation. That's kind of how simple it works. I want to go through a couple of the specific criteria here. Uh, because as you look out over the broad messianic movement, we have a lot of people who are in leadership positions not only nationally, but at uh, the local congregational level. And you have to ask yourself, well, how did they get that position, and, and what is the anointing and the authority they have? And let me just tell you that at the leadership, top leadership position, it better be not because of your superior knowledge. It better not be because you had a bunch of people who agreed to do this with you. It it, it better not be based on your strength and your ideas. It, It better be that your testimony is, God got a hold of me, he spoke to me, he led me, he inspired me, and I'm doing this for the Lord because the Lord asked me to do this. That should be the person who's in those ministries. But we have a lot of people... As the Messianic movement has grown up, who, upon seeing some of the early elements of the Messianic movement take off, they were enamored with what they saw. They saw wonderful things taking place. They wanted to be a part of it, and they thought, hey i want to be like those that i see there i want to do the same kind of thing and so i'm going to go out and and uh, make myself a leader and i'm going to go out and get my stuff going and 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 then that'll be wonderful without the call without the burning bush experience without the light on the road to Damascus and whatever else way that God may reach down there and touch you and speak to you and say this is what I want you to do in my own testimony I always knew as a young man that there was a day coming when I knew that the Lord would put me in a ministry exactly how I knew that was it was just it it just made sense to me as a young man and and I just had a sense that this this is going to be happening it's going to happen sometime I did not know when I didn't know how it would happen and from that day I went on to have a a career in the military then I went into aerospace engineering had uh, a bunch of years in that and then suddenly there was one morning where I was standing in my office, and I uh happened to look down the window and I saw the mist and the fog uh going through the trees and down into the parking lot where my car was parked, and I just heard the voice of the Lord say, "Now I'm going to do something different with you, Monty, okay, you know, just simple, straightforward." And sure enough, he moved me out of that location, and he brought me, interestingly enough, to Oklahoma. Now, what struck me about that was that many years ago, as a young man, I had felt the compunction, very specifically, that I should pray for the brethren in Oklahoma. Now, at the time, I'm living in Colorado, and there's all kinds of things going on all around. But for some reason, the Lord said, pray for the people in Oklahoma. Pray for the disciples and the brethren there. And I I did. And that would seem to be the end of it. And all of a sudden, here I am. I'm going to Oklahoma. And it hits me. I'm going to be part of the answer of the prayer I made to the Lord. The Lord's going to use me somehow for the brethren in Oklahoma. Uh, because I had earlier prayed for them. I, see, I get this connectivity, you know, how I knew I was going to be in ministry. I pray for the place where I'm going. Go. The Lord tells me we're going to do something different now. You know, I'm on this journey, this spiritual journey. And, um, and then while I'm here, um, then the Lord says to me, there's an occasion, uh, early on where the Lord says, um, the different thing is, you're now going to go to work for me. And the Lord worked it out uh, that the task that I was on, the job I was on, I got my notice that it was ending and I was not going to be needing the company. And I said, well, the Lord's orchestrating that. He's worked that out perfectly. And so and it was in early uh, 1995. It was 1995, yeah. And 1995, all of a sudden, I find myself in this position where i'm leaving that and i've and i'm like okay lord uh what do you want to do i'm supposed to go to work for you what what exactly and i went through a 40-day period i'm not making this up i went through a 40-day period not knowing what the answer would be but knowing i was getting ready to go to work for the lord i just don't know exactly what it's going to be at the end of the 40 days i knew the answers And the Lord specifically said, start this ministry. Start sending this newsletter out. Start teaching the people about Torah. Start teaching the people about what's getting ready to come. And that's how it started. And I've had my moments of where the Lord has spoken directly to me in his spirit. I've heard his voice before. So I have no doubt in all of the years that I've been operating now, That I'm doing something that the Lord told me to do, not something that I thought of that I should do. Now, I had done a lot of study. You know, I studied the Bible as a younger man uh, quite uh, strongly. I had studied prophecy. Uh, That was a fascinating subject to me. I had a lot of information on it, but I didn't have the anointing to go out and share that with anybody. Until this moment came and these things happened and we started this ministry. And that has sustained me throughout the years of this ministry more than 22 years being this ministry knowing that the lord called me to do it and that was the reason why i had the confidence in the midst of everything that has happened that we're going to hang in there we're going to make this happen and the lord has sustained me and provided the necessary resources to keep going and believe me there was a couple of moments when it was right down to the thin edge and he answered my prayer and he kept us going I don't believe that I could have accomplished what I had done had it just been my idea. I'd have given up on this thing a long time ago. I'd have given up on this thing when I had all kinds of people condemning me, when I had all kinds of people who just, you know, by the way, they were Christians, they were fellow believers, that just wanted to barbecue me. I'd have given up on it. I just said, I think you're all a bunch of fools, and I'm going to quit. I don't want anything more to do with you people. And I would have had a perfect logical reason to walk away. Only the Lord said I couldn't walk away. Because I wasn't working for them and their approval. I was working for him and his approval. And if I'm going to be the bond servant of the Lord, my reward or my punishment comes from my master, not from them. And that was solidly with me that I knew I was working for him, not for their attention or their favor. That was an important lesson because then as other people came in and loved me and were very expressive, again, I reminded myself, I'm not working for their affections. And I wouldn't allow their affections to stir me. I, hey, I'm appreciative of all of it, but I work for the Lord. And by the way, all the praise that I get is really, it belongs to my master. I'm just his servant doing what he, the good things you see, are the things that were done by him, not me. I just was the servant. I've always jokingly um, said to friends that if I die and there's a headstone set up for me, it needs to say the following words under my name. If there's anything that good that came out of my life, the credit of that goes to the Lord. If there was anything bad, that was my part. Again, differentiating and knowing what the Lord has actually done. The call of the Lord is that. It's that definition of the call. And you're operating under the authority model of the anointing, which is the same authority model of the Messiah. You don't operate under the authority model of a title or of a position, or because you have superior knowledge. This is what the Messiah was talking about when he said, call no man, rabbi, uh, teacher, leader. What he's really talking about is, you use the authority model that I use. You don't use the world's authority model. Use the one I use. Be a leader, because I called you to be a leader. That's how you do it. Um, Paul's instruction here, uh, specifically for overseers in the local congregation, are the same criteria for any leader. These qualification requirements are required of all. So let's go through them just a little bit. An overseer then must be above reproach. What's that mean? That means that he can't be known as a sinner he can't he can't have an issue in his life that is dominating his personality and his uh, thing where he is a, known as a sinner there's no reproach uh, from it uh the husband of one wife and that i really believe that what that's referring to is the issue of polygamy um, you can have multiple wives in your life, but you need to have one at a time when it comes to being an overseer in ministry. If you have multiple wives, you're too busy taking care of that. You ain't got time to come and take care of the congregation. And so I think what Paul's really referring to is uh, avoiding polygamy. Uh, by the way, the church has taught that as, oh, you can't have been be divorced. That's what they've done with that. Temperate. Well, I think you'll kind of understand what temperate is about. Is you're kind of level-headed uh, in in not only in happy times but in sad times, in angry times, you, you're temperate, prudent, with respectable. That there's enough air about you, enough presence about you, that people automatically give you a certain measure of respect. Hosp hospitable you have to be gracious to guests gracious to strangers that come in you have to be known for your being nice to people able to teach you have to be able to have the skills to stand in front of the assembly of the congregation and offer instruction that comes from the lord and comes from the scripture you must be able to teach not addicted to wine or pugnacious. Addicted to wine would be uh, an alcoholic. If you're an alcoholic, you should be in no leadership position whatsoever. Pugnacious means I take a few drinks and I get angry. In other words, I, I want to fight. And by the way, there are certain people in this world, they get into alcohol, they have one or two drinks, and the next thing you know, they... They want to get upset, and they they want to argue with people and they they want to fight and it 's saying not that kind of person can 't have that, but gentle, uncontentious, meaning this person is not has a clear testimony that he 's not going around being in conflict with people he 's a peaceful man, uh, free from the love of money he 's not greedy. He's not always looking for, where's the money in the situation? Oh my gosh, this is a huge one. This is a dominant one. There's a lot of people who come into ministry because they think it's a money maker. Um, You can't have that. They make decisions based on where they can get more money instead of making decisions that was to the benefit of the congregation or the brethren they're ministering to. But he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. And then verse 5, the reason why my verse is in parentheses, I don't know if in your Bible it has also in parentheses, is that is indicating that that's something that was written into the text after the original manuscripts. That's one of our churchmen trying to explain the wisdom of what this thing is. I don't disagree with the wisdom of it. He's basically saying, look, how you manage your house, your wife, your children, you're going to use the same skills and the same wisdom when you come to ministering to the congregation. If you're making your children angry, you'll be making the brethren angry. If you're lording it over your wife and your children, guess what? You're going to lord it over the brethren in the congregation. One of the biggest indicators you can see about what is a man really like is go and visit his house and meet his wife and his children and see how they live, see how they interact with their father. That will tell you more about the leadership skills of that man than any resume he can possibly give you with credentials from education, institutions, and so forth. That's the one that will really tell you what's going on in this guy's head. And it says, verse 6, And not a new convert, lest he be conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. This was the issue that finally blew me out of the Baptist church. I mean, I was a new messianic. I was bridging the gap. I had one foot in the Baptist church, one foot in the new messianic congregation. And I'm trying to be this all loving guy to help people to understand. And by the way, there's a whole bunch of you out there that think you have that charge to put one foot on the dock and one foot on the boat. And, and you think you're, you can help be a bridge. For the church to come over to the Messianic movement. Wrong. The boat's leaving. If you have one foot on the boat, one foot on the dock, I guarantee you this is not going to work out for you. There is no such bridge. And God didn't call you to be such a bridge. There is enough distinction and difference between Messianics and church-going Christians. There is no bridge. We profess To keep the commandments of the Lord. They profess to not keep the commandments of the Lord. You can't bridge that. Now certain individuals can change their heart. And go over and begin to follow what Yeshua said. If you love me keep my commandments. And they're willing to come over and learn the commandments. To do it. But there is no bridge between the two. And that's the reason why we have a messianic movement. Is the rejection of what church history has been doing. We know it's shallow, it's missing the point, it's completely wrong. Uh, let me give one other example. This just happened to be brought up this week. Uh, we had a question on the Q&A program where the guy was asking about um, eating unleavened bread and drinking the wine and about uh, uh, the idea of mixing it with Kiddush. And apparently he was writing the question because somebody had said to him, that you don't need to do that kiddish that we only need to do that at Passover one time. you don't need to do the kiddish, and the problem was the guy who was given the council didn't understand the difference between the two, and they're two totally different things. One has to do with Sabbath, the other one has to do with Passover. Sabbath comes every week, Passover comes once a year, and Passover always calls for unleavened bread, and um, kiddish you know you can have leavened bread. You know, for it. And here is the case of a guy who is new to the faith, new to these instructions. He doesn't fully understand Passover, and he doesn't fully understand keeping the Sabbath, and he's gotten confused and mixed a bunch of stuff, and now he's going around telling other people, oh, this is what you should do or what you shouldn't do. And I've seen this in my ministry of 35 years being in the Messianic movement. I have seen this repeatedly done by new people coming in. And that's the reason why the scripture says you're not supposed to have someone in leadership within the assembly giving instruction and telling people what they should be doing that is a new comfort that has just come new into this understanding and hasn't even been through a full Torah cycle yet. And by the way, we have a number of people that are in the Messianic movement who are in leadership positions. They've never been through a Torah cycle yet. They have never been given the basic instruction. They're just operating based on kind of their flying by the seat of their pants and their understandings and their guesswork. And it it does harm to the brethren. That's the reason why Paul said, not that in leadership. And finally... Um, he says, and he must have a good reputation with those outside as well, and not fall under the reproach and the snare of the devil. If you're looking at a good man, he's a good man everywhere he goes. If he's a good man here in the congregation... You can go to his workplace, you can go out into the world, his neighbors and so on, and they should give the same report. He's a good man. But if you go out and you hear, no, he's a swindler. He's a thief. He's contentious. And things like that, then he can't be a good man here if that's the way he is over there. You know, it's it's the... If if the fruit comes from the same tree, so if it's a good tree, it'll be good fruit. If it's coming from a bad tree, it'll be bad fruit. And and don't get faked out. So Paul has given this criteria. By the way, there's a parallel passage in Titus chapter 1 that goes with this. I can't go over there. My time has run out. But these are important things that have to do with the definition of leadership. If you're going to be ministering to the brethren at large, you need to be called of the Lord to do so. If you're in the local assembly, then your good reputation and your good behavior is what people are looking for you to give you some authority over the local congregation to help. There is criteria in both cases. It's not willy-nilly just because you decide to do it. In the case of the Lord must decide to call you. In the case of this, the people call you to the task. No time does the scripture say, you get the idea, I'm going to be in charge, I'm going to be the leader, I'm, I'm going to do this. That's not how it works. Shabbat Shalom.
2: bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace.
4: On a Friday night bringing peace into your home Families will gather all
2: around saying Shabbat Shalom Everybody sing Shalom
4: God has put a smile upon your.